Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. Christian McBride wears many hats. He is a musician, producer, educator, artistic director, and broadcaster who shows ja- whose show Jazz Night in America airs on NPR stations around the country. This eight-time Grammy Award-winning bassist is returning to Charlotte tomorrow night and bringing with him something different. Some would say epic, a concert event honoring five civil rights icons and incorporating their words with his music. Those icons include Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Barack Obama, Muhammad Ali, and Rosa Parks. He pointed at me and said, That one won't stand up. The two policemen came near me and only one spoke to me. He asked Just a sampling of uh, McBride's The Movement Revisited, a musical portrait of four icons, which he will be bringing to the Belk Theater tomorrow evening at 8 o'clock at the Performing Arts Center. And Christian McBride joins us now. Welcome back to the program. You don't remember this, but you were on the show very early in its incarnation. I don't know, 25, 24 years ago. Good morning. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And I think you were in the studio at the time, and you had your new, al- a new album had just come out. It was a long time ago. Back then, you were just, I guess to most people, an up-and-coming bass player with, uh, with several albums to your credit and making appearances around the country. And now you are the artistic director of the Newport Jazz Festival and the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, if that's still uh, accurate. You host NPR's Jazz Night in America, Sirius XM's The Lowdown, Conversations with Christian. And that just scratches the surface. How did all this happen for you? Well, that's a broad question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How did it all happen? Um, I just decided one day that uh, I wanted to play the electric bass. I started playing the electric bass when I was nine years old, and I I fell madly in love with it. And because of that, my mother decided that I should go to a school that had a good music program, and that's when I started playing the double bass. And my great uncle, who was also a double bassist, got so excited that I was now playing the the double bass. He gave me a crash course in jazz, and I fell in love with jazz. And uh, that's a, a very, very edited version of how it started. So on your Conversations with Christian show on Sirius XM, what are the conversations about and who are they with? Well, they tend to be with my musician friends because we also play. We play duets. And so I started doing that show in uh, 2008. And my first guest was Chick Corea, who I was on tour with at the time. And uh, since then, I've had a chance to interview and play duets with a lot of my friends, some of of whom are no longer here, like Chick and and Roy Hargrove. But uh, they're all my musician friends, and and we talk about whatever, mostly music. It sounds a little bit like uh, piano jazz with uh, Marion McPartland, which I, which I know you uh, took over from her. Just for a couple of episodes, but uh, 
It's it yes, it's based on piano jazz, but with uh, lots of comedy in it as well. <laughs> and and I also recorded in front of a live audience. Oh wow, excellent, excellent. Uh, how how unusual is it? It seems to me to be quite unusual for a bass player who's not usually front and center to be so front and center and to be able to branch out into so many different areas, not only of music, but of show business. I mean, you're the uh, artistic director of the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. I mean, is this something that you wanted to happen? Did it happen to you because of connections that you'd made along the way? That's what I meant by the first question. How did all this happen? Well, all of the things that aren't necessarily directly related to the base, I'm not sure how those things really happen. I had a... I had a performance at the University of Richmond. This was in 1998. And uh, the person who ran that series there, her name was Kathy Padoff. She walked, she came to me at the end of the performance and said, uh, we all have noticed the way that you interact with people and you seem to know a lot about the history of this music. Would you be interested in having an artistic directorship? And at that time, I didn't know what that meant. I said, well, can you walk me through what that means? And she told me that they had a week-long summer jazz series. And basically, when I'd be the artist in residence, my band would be in residence there at the school for a week, and I would bring in special guests multiple times during the week, and, and we would perform. And uh, I would give private lessons and things like that and uh, do local outreach And that was my first artistic directorship. And then the following year, I was offered the artistic directorship for Jazz Aspen, which is uh, obviously in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been doing that for, um, I'm going into my 24th year now. Uh, Newport came along because um, George Ween, well, in between there, I also had an artist, I was the artistic, uh, sorry, what did they call me? Oh, it was the creative chair for jazz programming with the LA Philharmonic. And um, that meant that I programmed 12 concerts every season, eight at the Hollywood Bowl, four at Walt Disney Concert Hall. That was my first real serious artistic directorship because uh, the Hollywood Bowl was 17,000 seats and there's no jazz concert in the world that can sell 17,000 seats. Uh, so that was when I really got to build my uh, uh, my commercial programming because mm-hmm. it was all about balance, having what you want and having what you had to have to sell tickets to pay for what you wanted to have. And when George Ween saw that, he said, you know, I've been following your career away from the base. And now that I'm 89 years old, I think I can finally step down as artistic director for the Newport Jazz Festival. Now, I'd had a little bit of a relationship with George, but we weren't like close, close. Uh, but he always kept his eye on what was going on in the world, in the jazz world. And so I was just absolutely flabbergasted when he uh, made that offer. And it, that was in it, 2016. It's just as you talk about all these things that you're involved in and all the major audiences that you reach uh, through your artistic directorships uh, and not only your playing but that it seems to me that you have put your fingers in so many pies and it spread your influence in music 
far more broadly than you could ever for have better been. or for worse as a, as a single musician. <laughs> well, for better or for worse, yeah. But uh, what does that give you some sort of sense of? Is it is it daunting? I guess is the question. It would, it would seem to me to be daunting because you really are influencing people, changing minds, uh, give, letting them hear what you think is important. I I suppose that's true. Um, I'm always reticent to give people any sort of direction unless they ask for it. All I do is like to present what I know and what I believe in, and hopefully whoever hears it, they will be influenced to uh, further analyze or research what I've presented to them or come up with something of their own that could uh, be of some weight to present for themselves. And I say that because one thing I always admired about George Ween is he was the godfather of the template for the music festival. Uh, Every music festival, and I'm talking about pop music festivals, rock music festivals, hip hop music festival, the live music festival was, was created by George Ween. And because his true love was jazz, he realized that our jazz community is so small that it was useless to sort of be territorial about creating a festival. What he loved more than anything else was seeing, was seeing jazz musicians perform. So if you wanted to start a jazz festival in New York, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, he would help that person build their festival. And he, he, he didn't want a part of it. He just wanted to help build more festivals. If, if, and I've seen people who were in his organization that said, George, you know, I think I know enough now that I want to start my own festival in my hometown. And George would say, great, I'll help you, you know. And he would actually create a network of, you know, hey, if you play Newport, then why don't you play Saratoga? If you play Saratoga, then why don't you play Pittsburgh? So, like, he helped to create a whole network. And that's what I think, I, that's what I think I'm doing with uh, all of these organizations and things that I'm involved in. I just want to create a bigger network of jazz lovers and jazz listeners. To be able to play at your level took a tremendous amount of work and dedication. To be able to bring the kind of understanding and, and depth of knowledge that you have about jazz and about music, for that matter, uh, to your other endeavors requires a real dedication. I'm just curious as to who your influences were as a young person coming up before you ever were known as, 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 as the famous Christian McBride, who were your influences and how did they impact your desire to work as hard as you must have had to work to become who you are? Well, I, I mentioned my great uncle, his name is Howard Cooper. He's right. one of two bass players in my family, my father being the other. Uh, those were my two first influences, uh, obviously, you know, being right there in the family. Uh, my father helped to build my love for the bass, and my great uncle helped me build my love for jazz, specifically. Uh, and then growing up in Philadelphia, it's such a great city. There were so many musicians around that I listened to and had a chance to practice with. My best friend from the time I was 12 years old 
was the late great Joey DeFrancesco. So Joey was a child prodigy. He'd started playing professional gigs around Philly when he was as young as nine years old. So by the time I met him, I was 12, he was 13, and he was already a working musician in Philadelphia. So he was uh, someone who inspired me greatly. Just watching him in school every day, uh, that, that inspired me tremendously. And then there were a lot of local Philly musicians like Robert Landon and, and uh, Donald Warren, Antonio Parker. They, they were all great influences. Uh, in another interview you did, you referenced Wynton Marsalis as being the first person that you met that became really important to you and uh, talked about his seriousness, his intelligence, his virtuosity right. as a musician. You met him at the age of 15, and you say he was an overpowering person. He's been on this program several times, and I got to tell you, present company accepted, he is the most intelligent person I have ever spoken to on this program. He is he's, remarkable. Uh, he's quite a, he's quite a, quite a person. So aside from wowing you at a very young age and taking his master class, talk about the doors that relationship opened for you over time, either directly or indirectly. Sure. He was, Winton was the first person who was outside of the local scene who really seemed to take a genuine interest in my development. This was in June of 1987, and he asked me to come and sit in with his quartet, his quintet, rather, sorry. And just a few weeks later, Branford Marcellus came to town. And I met Branford and he said, oh yeah, I heard about you from Winton. And a, short, a few short weeks after I met Branford, I met Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison. Let me stop the story there. said the same thing. Let me stop the story there because we got to take a break. I'm sorry to do that to you. Our guest today, Christian McBride, is in town for the Movement Revisited, which we'll talk about when we come back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. Our guest today is Christian McBride, a famous bassist who is now got his fingers in every musical pie you can possibly imagine. He's bringing his uh, Movement Revisited uh, suite to town. It's a, a musical portrait of four civil rights icons, which we'll talk about and share some with you in, in, in a moment or two. I had to interrupt you in the middle of a story about your uh, the relationship that you developed with Winton Marsalis, which branched out to Branford Marsalis, which then branched out to uh, uh, Terry uh, Terrence Blanchard. Uh, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but continue problem yeah so the summer and the fall of 1987 was pretty big and it all stemmed from that meeting and uh spending time with Wynton Marcellus and the saxophonist Bobby Watson for whatever reasons has always had a deep deep love and respect for musicians from Philadelphia so he was always in Philadelphia either playing a gig or doing a master class or a workshop somewhere. And I had, of course, been a fan of Bobby's through his work with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. And so when I finally decided to go to New York to go to college, uh, 
which, by the way, uh, was influenced. Well, my mother allowed me to move to New York, mostly because of the conversation that she had with Winton, because, you know, this was 1989 and New York was still pretty dangerous. And, uh, you know, my mother, having watched my father and all of the musicians that he played with, she was very concerned about, you know, my safety and the musician lifestyle and et cetera, et cetera. And so Winton had a very long conversation with her, which basically said, you know, uh, Christian seems to be really intelligent, strong young man. And, you know, just to let you know, musicians are not like what they used to be in the 50s and 60s. There's not a lot of not a lot of drugs going around. I mean, that was sort of half true, but <laughs> it, it was enough to let my mother kind of ease up a little bit and let me move to New York City. So uh, once I got to New York, Bobby Watson found out and uh, he came to Juilliard. He came to find me at Juilliard and he offered me my first gig. That was in September of 89. And I, I played with his quartet at Birdland with uh, wow. James Williams on piano and the great Victor Lewis on drums. And uh, I was I was 17 years old and scared to death. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, when you become as good as you become in any in any field, I don't care whether you play the bass or whether you're a medical doctor, if you're as good as you are, it's because you love what you do because it takes so much dedication and you've been able to also spread that love and, and explain it to other people through the concerts that you produce and take part in. And you do these two radio shows, one on NPR, one on Sirius XM. But it's really difficult to find jazz on the radio. How, how frustrating is that for you and your fellow musicians? I believe now is, is a different era. I'm not sure if, say, in the generation under, under 40, uh, they don't listen to the radio with the same ear as people older than that do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to get their music mostly from YouTube or some, you know, some DSP like Spotify or Title or things like that. But I'm very grateful to NPR for allowing me to have this voice as host of Jazz Night in America because. NPR realizes how difficult it is to have representation for jazz on the air. So throughout all of the changes that they've gone through, they have made it very clear that we're going to always have a jazz, a show dedicated to jazz. And uh, so that's specifically with NPR, but I think that in terms of jazz on the radio, it's never been the easiest thing to find. I mean, even no. growing up in Philadelphia in the late seventies throughout the eighties, there were made there there was one there was only one dedicated station to jazz. And then maybe there were three other stations that had jazz segments throughout the day. But I guess it's it hasn't really been popular music since the 50s or early 60s. Well, that's what I was, I was kind of getting to, because even though you can get, there are many different places you get music today from Spotify and, and, and Tidal and, and other things like that. You are a multiple-time Grammy winner, I think eight-time Grammy winner. 
So you've been to the Grammy Awards, you've gotten the Grammy Awards, but at, even at the Grammy Awards, jazz is kind of over there. It's off into yeah. the corner someplace. And everything else is hip-hop and pop, etc. Et uh, and yet jazz is America's classical music. It is a creation of America. Why haven't we embraced it? Why haven't more people embraced it? I feel like American culture is deeply, deeply rooted in celebrity. It's deeply rooted in celebrity style, flash, quick turnarounds, image, brand. Money. Money. These are all, what, what was that? Money. It, it, well, yes, exactly. And jazz is about a slow build. It's about discipline. Uh, it's about listening. Uh, it's almost, it's, it's about the closest thing to meritocracy as, as you can find. Um, you know, in terms of, athletic, of, of athletics, usually the best athlete simply rises to the top because they can do things that the other person can't do. But there's also so much flash and money involved in that. People see that. In jazz, it's just uh, you work hard to play really great music. And uh, there's not a lot of flash. There's not a celebrity, uh, not a lot of celebrity involved in that. And there's not a lot of money involved in that, sadly. Uh, I mean, certainly musicians can make their lives, but, you know, we're not going to have, uh, you know, I, I saw this stat. I can't remember the exact number, but I think uh, only 50 jazz albums in history have gone gold or greater. Wow. Uh, and I think only two of those 50 actually went platinum, or maybe three of those 50. And in the pop world, you have about 50 to 60 gold to platinum records per year. And so since, since, the, since the RIAA was created, that means only one jazz album every year. That's an average of one jazz album every year. And uh, most of those albums a long time to go gold yeah. uh, or platinum. So I don't know if, if, if someone were to come up with some sort of marketing scheme where jazz, I don't know, some sort of baller culture <laughs> uh, or, you know, start making videos with like, you know, girls dancing in it or something like that. I don't know. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what we're used to seeing. That's right. what people like. It's all about this, you know, the branding, the culture, the flash, the style, the look. Um, and not a lot of people get past that first layer, you know, and jazz is such a deep layered art form. And, and, that, and that goes for, the, for a whole lot of other things, because you also mentioned how it, with the Grammy Awards, you know, jazz kind of gets put over there. But I think there are a total of 70 categories or 65 categories or something like that. You only see nine on the televised <laughs> portion. Right. So, you know, that means 56 awards, you know, 56 categories, no one sees unless you're actually at the Grammy Awards. So that says a lot about our culture. 
So let's talk about, before we run out of time, let's talk about the reason that you are in town, the movement revisited. Yes. It is a suite of, of, of pieces that are tied together, I think, loosely by the Rosa Parks character, if I understand this correctly, and it features civil rights icons speaking their words to your music. Explain it better than that. What are people going to experience? Well, what it is is uh, back in the late 90s, I was given a commission by the Portland, Maine Art Society, excuse me, and they asked me to compose something for uh, some black history programming they were doing there. And so I decided to pick four people who really meant a lot to me growing up. I read a lot about Rosa Parks and Dr. King, of course, Malcolm X, and who wasn't a Muhammad Ali fan, uh, particularly in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, even though he was one of the greatest fighters of all time, I really started to admire him once I had learned about him not going to Vietnam and uh, a, a lot of things that he spoke out against. So th- those were four people that meant a lot to me. So I took their words. Uh, I went through a process of listening to a lot of their speeches and and uh, clips from documentaries and wrote music to it. and. That was in 1998. At that time, the piece was just written for a quartet and a gospel choir. Oh, by the way, the commission stipulated that the piece had to involve a gospel choir. And I had no idea how to write choral music. And so uh, the great J.D. Steele of the Steele family was brought in and J.D. became he became my foil for this piece. So we've been working together on this piece since the very, very beginning. We did these four concerts in 1998 and we never did it again. And in 2008, by this time I was creative chair with the LA Phil, my boss at the time said that, uh, hey, I read somewhere that you wrote some civil rights piece called the Movement Revisited. Tell me about it. And so, uh, Some would say it's called thinking on your feet. Some would call it a lie. I said, uh, yeah, that's that's a piece I wrote for a big band and uh, a mass choir and and four narrators. And much to my surprise, she said, that sounds interesting. Let's do it. And so now I forced myself to actually rewriting the piece as a big band piece and, and for a bigger choir. But that was that was good because now the piece actually now sounded like I originally envisioned it, you know, how I uh, imagined it. And uh, after we played it, that was in the summer of 2008. Of course, Barack Obama was elected president in November of 2008. And the movement revisited had already been booked to play in Detroit in February of 2009. So the director of the festival at that time said, Hey, would you be interested? You know, if I, if I commissioned you, would you be interested in writing a fifth movement? Uh, or, you know, adding a person. Mm -hmm. Now she did not say Obama, but I was able to read in between the lines. (laughs) And, uh, so I wrote the final movement, which is called apotheosis. November 4th, 2008. 
So the piece is not necessarily dedicated to Obama because when I wrote that piece, he hadn't even been sworn in yet. And so I thought it would be quite premature to add him as an icon, but his, his election, his being elected was quite epic. And so that's why the piece is called Apotheosis, November 4th, 2008. So let, let's, let's uh, so that people get a better understanding of what we're talking about here when we talk about the movement revisited, let's hear from one of those earlier icons. Let's hear from Malcolm X. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of human beings, in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring to existence by any means necessary. I am not a racist. In the past, I permitted myself to be used to make sweeping indictments of all white people, the entire white race. And these generalizations have caused injuries to some whites who perhaps did not deserve to be hurt. Because of the spiritual enlightenment which I was blessed to receive as a result of my pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca, I no longer subscribe to sweeping indictments of any one race. Our problem is not an American problem. It's a human problem. It's not a matter of civil rights. It's a matter of human rights. So. I truncated that a bit for time, but his words do speak to the challenges of his time, and they seem to speak today almost as strongly, perhaps more so. Is that why it's worth listening to these words again? Absolutely. You know, as a um, as an accidental historian growing <laughs> up, uh, specifically Malcolm X, I tried to, the, the bulk of, his text is pulled from the last year of his life. Of course, Malcolm X came to be known as a member, as an officer of the Nation of Islam, who had quite radical beliefs. And when Malcolm broke away from the Nation of Islam and started to discover life on his own, when he went to Mecca and discovered racism and how it worked on a grand scale, on a world scale, uh, I believe his words became much deeper. And so I tried to use most of the text that I used from Malcolm came from his post Mecca uh, period, which sadly wasn't very long. And of course he was uh, shot to death uh, less than a year after his trip to Mecca. Uh, And we're going to hear little snippets of all of these icons that you feature in uh, the movement revisited. But a lot of what they say, I think, can be seen as um, universal, never-ending truths or as statements that continue to be true despite our best efforts to improve the world and the world has not caught up. How do you view them? And I've got a minute. I think there are some... some, uh real deeply seated 
common human behavior that needs to be studied uh, when it comes to tribalism, uh, when it comes to fear. Uh, we are at the end of an animal chain, so we still have animalistic tendencies. And I think as intelligent as we allegedly are, we should figure out how to come together and, and live together in peace. We have to fight those, those animalistic qualities. Christian McBride is our guest. Uh, he's bringing to town the movement Revisited, a musical portrait of four icons to the uh, Belk Theater tomorrow evening at 8, and we will continue our conversation and hear just a little bit more of what you may hear tomorrow night in a moment. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. Our guest today, Christian McBride, the bassist who's bringing to town the movement Revisited, a musical portrait of four icons, civil rights icons, at the Belk Theater Friday evening at 8 o'clock. One of those icons, uh, and I have a lot of questions about how you did this in a moment, but I'm going to play some snippets of this. Muhammad Ali, uh, that's how the world knows him today. But I'm old enough to remember him when he was Cassius Clay, until one day he changed his name. Cassius Clay was my slave name. I'm no longer Clay. I've been bestowed with the beautiful new name Muhammad Ali. From now on, you will call me Muhammad Ali. And we hear him talk about both civil rights and oppression. We've been brainwashed. Everything good is supposed to be white. All the good cowboys ride the white horses and wear white hats. Angel food cake is the white cake, but the devil's food cake is chocolate. Even Tarzan, the king of the jungle in black Africa, he's white. We look at Jesus and we see pictures of a white man with blonde hair and blue eyes. We look at all the angels, we see whites with blonde hair and blue eyes. Now, I'm sure if there's a heaven in the sky and color folks die and go to heaven, there must be some colored angels. Well, where are they? They must be in the kitchen preparing the milk and honey. And you would not capture Muhammad Ali if you didn't remind us of his trademark braggadociousness, if that's a word, when it came to his boxing career. Everyone says I don't have a chance. Everyone says I have nothing but a prayer. But all I need is a prayer, because if that prayer reaches the right man, not only will George Foreman fall, but mountains will fall. If you think the world was shocked when Nixon resigned, wait till I kick George Foreman's behind. I used to talk trash before my fights. I am the greatest. I am pretty. Sounded cocky, you know? Now, as black people, we've always been humble and didn't boast. So when I'd holler, I am the greatest, I was saying things that they wanted to say, but were afraid to say. They wanted to say what I said. They wanted to talk back to the white master. They wanted to reject Vietnam. They wanted to be cocky. They wanted to be fearless. So they loved me because they saw that in me. This is what made me so popular.
Now, we, we just spent some time talking about how this started as a musical uh, piece and, and uh, you had to rewrite it to make it big bandish because you had promised that it would be. And there is no music under Muhammad Ali at all. It's just punctuated by these drums. Uh, why? There's, there's not music on anyone other than uh, the introduction to the piece, the overture, and under uh, the piece called Soldiers, which is uh, the music behind King's I Have a Dream speech. Uh, most of the text that is read is tends to be only read only with a bass backdrop uh, or bass and flute or bass, flute, and percussion, but... Uh, I don't want much to distract from the the readings of, of the text. Uh, the big band pieces tend to stand on their own. Uh, so the overture, the interludes, and, uh, and the closing, um, apotheosis, those are the only pieces that has actual music behind it. And it seems to work, at least to me, uh- having not heard the whole piece, uh, pretty well with Muhammad Ali because the drums kind of imitate that jabbing that boxers do that he was famous for doing. And it also works as kind of, because he's funny, as kind of the rim shot you would hear in a vaudeville comedian's act. Well, when I first conceived this idea of having, uh, you know, Ali conversing with the drums, uh, you're right, drums do seem like the natural instrument to have behind a boxer, but specifically behind Muhammad Ali. Much later, after we actually you know, recorded, I was worried that it would actually be interpreted as some sort of a comedic uh, thing because you know, some of those old school comedians, like you said, they would be punctuated by a rim shot and a cymbal crash. You right. Know? So I was, I started to become paranoid. Like, I hope no one thinks this is supposed to be funny, you know? And that's why I will tell our drummer, Terry on gully. Sometimes he, his, some, sometimes his, uh, his responses would be too short and they would sound like a rim shot and a cymbal. Uh-huh. And so I would say, no, 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 play longer. <laughs> okay. Rosa Parks. Let's hear it from Rosa Parks. He pointed at me and said, That one won't stand up. The two policemen came near me and only one spoke to me. He asked me if the driver had asked me to stand up. I said, Yes. He asked me why I didn't stand up. I told him I didn't think I should have to stand up. So I asked him, why do you push us around? And he told me, I don't know, but the law is the law and you are under arrest. I don't know who the actress is, but she's wonderful. Uh, unlike that the others, the great, that is the great Sonia Sanchez. The well, she's great, wonderful. Yes, 
Um, Rosa Parks did not set out to be a civil rights icon. Uh, she kind of didn't go much beyond not, not getting off the bus, not getting out of her seat on, on that bus. But she still is among the strongest influences in that movement because she refused to give up her seat on the bus. Human dignity must be respected at all times. I would have, you see, compromised my dignity if I had buckled one more time to the white establishment and relinquished my seat. The mistreatment would have continued. I would have also compromised my dignity if I had resisted violently, not standing up on that bus was a matter of self-respect. So the musical accompaniment here, and I don't, I'm just curious how you arrived at accompanying her that way, because it's kind of reminiscent, honestly, of Gil Scott Heron's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which I think came out in 1974. She sat on the bus in 1955. Is the similarity... Um, happenstance or did it just feel right to orchestrate it that way it just felt right to orchestrate it that way you know and then w once all of these interludes are over uh then it goes into the corresponding big band piece uh but but behind most of these readings i tried to find what i thought would be the uh the correct musical backdrop in fact later on in the piece when Rosa Parks is introducing Martin Luther King, there's no music at all because what she says in talking about Martin Luther King's death, that didn't need any music. The pure weight of her sentiment carries it. Now, you are a jazz musician, and this is kind of a jazz piece where there is music under the dialogue. Uh, it seems to be uh, they don't get in the way of each other. Is it ad-libbed? Is it orchestrated? Is it written out? Do, 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 the, does the, or, does, do the musicians know when to swell and the uh, reader know when to stop? How, how, did, how does that work? Well, obviously, there's, there's a script that all of the, uh, the actors... Uh, read from, but in terms of the music behind them, it's all improvised. Wow. I tend to use the same band. I mean, th this piece is, is very big, you know, it's for, for the choir and the four narrators and the big band. I don't carry the entire group with me everywhere. So generally when I play this piece, I only bring my rhythm section J.D. Steele, of course, who, who works with all of the, the choirs that we work with locally, and, uh, and my section leaders, lead trumpet player, lead trombonist, and lead saxophone player. Uh, so these interludes are played by those musicians. They, they know this stuff already. Uh, but for tomorrow's performance here in Charlotte, this is one of the very few times I was actually able to bring my entire band from New York. So wow. everybody's here. But then I, I believe I'm correct in saying that the readers, the people reading the words of these icons are local people. That's correct. And uh, that's one of the beauty. That's one of the beautiful things about this piece is I get to really work with local artists. How much rehearsal do they get? Cause this would seem to be a, a, a daunting, um, 
undertaking for because these are well, important words and the piece is important. So you don't want to screw it up. We have a four hour rehearsal at three o'clock today. <laughs> and then we will have uh, another rehearsal tomorrow morning. And uh, we will also have a um, it will be combined with a performance for for some young people. So we theoretically are going to play the movement revisited twice tomorrow. Okay. Uh, when you performed this uh, at the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles, the LA Times said the work was, quote, admirable for both the content of its music and the character of its message. Paraphrasing, of course, uh, Dr. King. And he does figure prominently in this piece with his I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Uh, this is also among the most famous and best speeches in American history, it, it must also be the climactic moment in this in this piece. Am I right? Uh, close. <laughs> Just a little more. <laughs> okay, and, and it's also rather, I, I think, like a yardstick uh, on which you can measure progress. It seemed as though to many people that progress had been made. You referenced the fact that there is an apotheosis with uh, uh, Barack Obama, uh, which. Uh, right. Uh, was, I think, written about his uh, election night. Uh, That's correct. In yeah. America, in Chicago. Um, so you could measure progress but uh, for a while, or at least it appeared that you could from this Martin Luther King speech, but maybe not. Is race still at the center of everything? Of course. Of course. Um I think oftentimes when you don't want it to be, and I think that's the part about being super conscious, uh, super aware, and to really break free of these these animal qualities that we have, and these sort of uh, qualities of of fear and and you know someone taking something from you because they are fill in the blank. Um, it's America. Sadly, so many things have happened in our in our country uh, based on what somebody is, not who somebody is, you know. And um, we do have the ability to get get over that, but we we just don't, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think it's much more difficult now because social media has played such a big part in our everyday lives. Uh, social media is really just one big, hot, flaming barn yes. fire. And if you get too <laughs> close to it, 
you know, you you know, you you open up social media to figure out ways to be offended about something that you right. didn't used to be offended about. <laughs> I have about a minute left, and I'm I'm just curious how audiences react to this. How do young people react to this? Because although they probably have heard the "I Have a Dream" speech, they may not have heard Rosa Parks' words. They may not right. have heard Malcolm X or even even Muhammad Ali. What's the reaction been? Well, it's interesting now that you have an entire generation that never knew Muhammad Ali as a fighter. Uh, you talk to someone in their 30s or 40s, they might say, Mike Tyson is the greatest fighter who ever lived. But then you right. realize that's generational. Um, so, yeah, put Ali in there also. Uh, the reactions always tend to be positive. Uh, I just hope that when people hear this piece, they become curious enough to maybe go back and do some reading about the, the four subjects. Christian McBride, our guest today, his moment, The Movement Revisited, a musical portrait of four icons, will be at the Belk Theater tomorrow evening at 8 o'clock. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate the hour. And we're going to leave you with uh, more of the 1963 Let Freedom Ring speech from Dr. King. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and singing the words of that old Negro spirit. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. We are free at last. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah Delia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.